I'm Major Robinson. Leslie Messer. Mary Stranahan. Senator Dwayne Ackney. Marcy McLean in Billings, Montana. In, in Helena, Montana. Colstrip, Montana. Sydney, Montana. From Arley, Montana. And you are listening. And you're listening to. And you are listening to Listen First. Listen First. Listen First. You are listening to the podcast Listen First Montana. Hi, this is Chantel Schieffer, President and CEO of Leadership Montana. Views and opinions shared by guests of Listen First Montana do not reflect the opinions of all of our alumni or organization. We are a large group with lots of opinions, believe me. If you hear something that makes you uncomfortable, we invite you to listen deeply, listen hard, and listen first. I made the cut. I got the phone call and said, how would you like, would you, are you still interested in serving on this organizing committee for this program called Leadership Montana? I said, I'm in. Welcome to Listen First Montana, a podcast of Leadership Montana. I'm Eric Halverson. Today I'm speaking with our first guest from Haver, Montana, Deb Vandenberg. Deb has been involved with Leadership Montana since the beginning, even before the beginning. She served on the organizing committee for Leadership Montana way back in 2003 when it was little more than a simple vision for strengthening our state. After helping create Leadership Montana, she became a graduate of the inaugural class in 2005. Today, she serves as Vice Chair of the Board of Governors. Deb shares stories about growing up in Haver, why she loves her hometown so much, how she ended up in New York City with an $8 million handbag purchasing budget, and how and why she came back to Haver to run her own incredibly successful clothing store and later served as the Executive Director of the local Chamber of Commerce, and so much more. Deb Vandenberg, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Eric. This could be fun. It's so much fun. I'm so glad you're on the show. So my first question I want to ask you about is you are our first Haverite on the show. And you just told me, maybe five minutes before we hit record, that um, you love your town to a fault. Tell me about that. Well, as we'll go through our conversation today... Um, I had the opportunity to leave Haver and come back, and I didn't realize until I left how wonderful my community was. And one of the things, when I wasn't living in my community, I felt like in the bigger cities it was too hard to get involved in stuff other than just go to work and come home from work. And so I realized that I wanted to get back to a space like Montana where I felt I could get involved in the community and make a difference. And the best case scenario was um, I was able to move back to Haver, my hometown, born and raised there, and open a business and get involved. And from day one, it was, what can I do to make my town better? What can I do to make a difference? And... um, that's that's been me from the day I moved back in June of 1986. I hit the ground running, and I I I love my town, 
I love the people in my community and I just want to give back mm -hmm. because I had such a wonderful life growing up there. Um, as small as picking up litter on the streets. Um, I just have a passion for small, charming communities that are pretty and vibrant and fun. Yeah. So let's go back to you growing up in Haver. What did your parents do? My dad um, was an entrepreneur. Okay. He had a couple jobs. Um, I'm the oldest of five children, so he worked a lot. And my mom's job was to be an incredible stay-at-home mom. And she always baked cookies and treats when we had birthdays at school and show up. So it was, and as we all started to fall out of the nest, she did get a job at the high school working in the offices and stuff. But um, I had the great pleasure, opportunity, experience to grow up and have her with both sets of my grandparents. And my one set of grandparents, as you noted, lived across the street. And it was the best because I, I was on crutches for a, several years. And so um, grandma kind of took me under her wing. And during those times, I learned to bake and cook, which I still do today and love to entertain. And um, she ended up opening up a knitting shop teaching ladies how to knit and crochet and so I got to do that and learn that and teach that and I created a challenge for her because I'm left-handed and she didn't know how to teach left-handed people so if she had a left-handed person then I got to teach them so it was um, it was just it was wholesome it was real um, she was like if you looked it up in the Webster dictionary both of my grandmas were the epitome definition of a grandma. And what were their names? Doris and Beulah. Beulah. Oh, my goodness. That is not one I've heard in a while. Yes. Oh. yes. <laughs> and by a while, I mean ever. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you'd mentioned that um, you were on crutches for a long period of your childhood. And this is something that we talked about in our pre-podcast <laughs> conversation. And it ended up being sort of this thread throughout our conversation about how formative that was, how that sort of that experience shaped who you are. So can you tell us what happened when you were six years old and, and that sort of five-year stretch? I was having a difficult time walking. I developed a very de definitive limp. And so I was being treated by our local doctor. And after about six weeks, he said, she's not getting any better. She's getting worse. So he sent me to a bone specialist, Dr. Tom Powers in Great Falls, and he immediately diagnosed me. We, they thought I might have had polio. Polio was kind of around in the, in the 50s. I was born in 1953. So there was a couple kids in Haver that had polio, so they thought that maybe that's what I had. Um, and I didn't. I had a disease called leg perthes disease, which is a deterioration of the top of the femur bone that fits into your hip socket. And so I got to live in a body cast, which was a, not a fun experience at six years old. Mm for a while and they thought they had caught it soon enough but it didn't so then I got to be the proud owner of crutches for the next five years and I the the deal was I couldn't put any pressure on my left leg at all because it would deform the new growth of the top of the femur bone to fit into the hip socket so I was pretty much 
relegated to inactivity. But um, when I got to go back to school with my crutches, of course, I was kind of a weird person because I had crutches. And um, the teachers were very protective and didn't want me to do the relay races or anything on the playground. And by third grade, I was said, this, this isn't going to work. And so I mastered walking on my crutches with not even my good foot. I could balance myself and throw my weight back and forth and walk without any foot on the ground. So I got to play in the relay races on the playground, and um, I learned to ride my bicycle with just my right leg. I'd push with down and then bring it back up with the top of my foot, and I'd ride my bike around the neighborhood like all the other kids because I didn't want to be different. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be normal. And so I, I, I just worked really hard at persevering to be normal and to be, I guess, accepted yeah. for who I was. Even though I didn't think I was weird, I was weird. And when I got off my crutches, I couldn't just magically walk. I had to learn to walk all over again because those were the formative years. And my left leg was a little bit shorter. So then I had to go through some therapy and do all this kind of stuff. Um, so it, I, was, I was determined that I was going to fit in and be normal. And, and I did. In high school, I was on the first girls track team at Haver High. And... I was a cheerleader and did all that kind of stuff. So it, it, it paid off. I just didn't want to be different. Yeah. And was it, would you say it was your two grandmothers that were in your corner rooting you on that really they put were. wind in your sails? Yeah. They, they were. And my dad. My dad and I had to drive to Great Falls twice a month for five years for checkups. Oof. And um, there's a song by um, Benny King called Stand By Me. And sing it, Deb. No, I can't, <laughs> I can't sing it. <laughs> but it was my dad. The song came on one day when we were coming home from Great Falls, and my checkups were getting better and better. And he was getting excited that we were at the end of this. But he just looked at me and he said, I will always stand by you. What's your dad's name? Gary. Sounds like a special guy. He was. He was my best friend. And he yeah. also taught me, and we chatted about this yesterday too, that he looked at life, he was very carefree, and he, like, he'd, he'd be mad at you, and in five minutes he'd be giving you a hug and loving on you because it was over. If you screwed up, you got in trouble, and then life went on. And he taught us that um, you're going to have bad days at school, but you get to go and come home and go to sleep and wake up the next day, and it's a whole new program. It's a whole new stage. The curtain's going to go up, and you get to decide whether you're going to have a good day or a bad day. Yesterday, when we chatted, you told me a story about the first day you came home with a clean bill of health to, to mm -hmm. walk. Can you tell that story? Well... My grandparents were there, and everybody was there, and Dad and I got home. And, and you were 11 years old, right? I was 11 years okay. old. And uh, got a bath and new jammies and everything, and everybody's just sitting there waiting for me to 
walk out into the family room and I took my first step and fell flat on my face. And there was this, this silence that was just, and somebody started crying and, and so my doctor wanted me to do that because what I didn't want was to have to work where my, use my crutches anymore. But he said, you're still going to have to walk with your crutches. And I said, no, I'm not. I am going to walk. So for the next few months, to get myself back acclimated to learn how to walk all over again, I still had to continue to use my crutches. But I was walking with both of my legs. So it wasn't, um, well, I was excited. I was sad. But it was reality to get to the end. And I think my family was sad because I think they wanted it all to be perfect. Mm -hmm. But the doctor had already warned us that it may not turn out perfect. I want to go to this remarkable stage of your life where you were moving and working and you were in Pullman and Phoenix and Sacramento and New Jersey and you ended up sort of in New York City with an eight million dollar purchasing budget for handbags can you <laughs> can you get us to, to that that part of your life I had um I had great opportunities like you said I got to move around and I used each one of those opportunities I'd kind of found my niche in retail um in Pullman Uh, My ex-husband was going to college, and so I needed to work. And I had a wonderful boss that owned a great company there. And so I just kind of, it just worked. I loved it. I loved working with people. I loved going to market and buying merchandise and selling it and all of that. So fast forward to Sacramento, I got to manage a store. Fast forward to Arizona, I managed a store. And then I took a um, job with Goldwaters because it looked like my ex-husband would get moved to the corporate offices in Rahway, New Jersey, and so I wanted to make a good transition. So I got a job with Goldwaters, and lo and behold, then we ended up moving, and so I transferred with to the store that was the same corporation, Lord & Taylor. And I worked, um, worked up the ranks for about the first six months and ended up being a handbag buyer. And... Um, we traveled to Italy, we traveled to the Philippines, we traveled to Taipei and Taiwan and, and great experiences. And while I loved it, and it was an education in retail that you could never get in a textbook, it was, it was boots on the ground learning. And working for a corporation was an education in itself versus a small business. But while I was there, I knew that this wasn't going to be my life. I wasn't going to ride New Jersey Transit into New York City every day and do this job. And so my ex-husband and I said, we got to get back to Montana. We got to get back to our roots. We got to get back and be where we love being. And best case scenario, he could live anywhere in Montana. And so we said, let's go back to Haver. We got family there and... I opened a clothing store, and um, it was it was my dream come true. 
to own my own business. After working for so many years for other people, it was, um, it, it was wonderful. So were you in New Jersey for like eight years? We were there for five and a half years, five just and about, about five years. Okay. Yeah. And you're in your 30s, mm-hmm. late 20s, early mm-hmm. 30s. Okay. I want to hear your best story from a big trip abroad or from New York City, or you just told me a great story about being in Italy. And so the Italy story was probably, well, first let me preface my, my time in New York was one of the first days I came up out of the guts of Penn Station and walking in this massive humanity to Fifth Avenue to visit a handbag vendor that I had an appointment with. And I looked up at the Empire State Building and I looked around and I went, what is this little girl from Haver, Montana doing in downtown New York City? It was like an, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. It was like, holy moly, what am I doing here? And fast forward four plus years later, I'm still there. But I was on one of our Italian trips to Florence, Italy. And we had a wonderful vendor that we worked with. And so she was going to entertain us. And discos were really big in downtown Florence at the time. And and it was kind of down some dark stairs and whatever. But you could hear the music playing. And so we got down there after dinner. And keep in mind, now I'm living in New Jersey. And... Um, Bruce Springsteen was singing Born in the USA. And I'm like, I'm in Florence, Italy, and I'm listening to Bruce, and I could go down the Jersey Shore and listen to him. But it just kind of brought that that whole world, I guess, how small our world really is. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, coming home from that trip, um, I took a helicopter from... John F. Kennedy over to Newark, and we flew over the Statue of Liberty and saw the whole New York skyline. And I got to say, I never thought I'd ever say this, but after being gone for two and a half weeks in Hong Kong and doing the seeing the world, New York City skyline was home. And mm. it was like, okay, this isn't good if I'm looking at New York and this is home. But then I kind of had that feeling when we flew over the Statue of Liberty. It was like, I kind of, I kind of had that feeling how the immigrants felt mm. when they came to a new country and got to explore and start a better life for them and their family. So it kind of was a, it was kind of a defining moment to um, have that feeling, and I had been. To the, to the island and had researched some of my family that came in through that port of the Statue of Liberty. So it kind of brought it full circle. All right, so let's talk about, now you're going to make a move. Can you talk about like when, when this discussion started happening with your ex-husband about, okay, we're going to go back to Montana, and then how you land on Haver... We knew that New York wasn't going to be our end of the road. So, and wanting to get back to Montana, because we both liked the outdoors and we skied and did that kind of stuff. Um, It just, because he was going to be traveling, there was no specific town in Montana that he had to live. He just had to be able to get to an airport. And... 
so we just kind of said, okay, let's go back to Haver. And I made a trip back and looked around at buildings of where I could possibly put my store. And so we moved back in June, and I opened my store in October of 1986. And it, I mean, it was, it was an easy transition, kind of, because we were home. But um, those years I was gone, it changed a lot, too, and a lot of new people. And so my sister worked with me. And so the first year I was open, she'd kind of be my little bird in the back, and she'd say, okay, that's Mrs. So-and-so, and da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. So she was always connecting people and so on and so forth. So um, she helped me a lot get through that that introductory period. I had to slow down. I walked fast because in Manhattan you move fast, you walk fast, you live fast. And so it was a time to settle back, take a breath, um, wave at people when you go by on the street. (laughs) Don't just look up at the sky. Um, A different, it was a different life and I didn't realize I had changed that much. Mm -hmm. And I was even told I had a New York accent which just, oh, that Cut you deep. Fighting words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about your store. You told me that you wanted to bring a little New York glitz <laughs> to the ladies of Haver. Well, my store was like coming and having an experience. Um, my brother is a graphic artist, and so he helped me design my logo. Okay. My colors were black and white. I wanted an awning on the front of the building. I'd already leased, was looking at a building. Um. I had already worked on fixtures that were going to be made and designed for my store. Um, I went to Don Sorensen in Virgil and bought a bunch of antiques and set them around in the store, and they became fixtures that we merchandised on. So um, it wasn't the typical store. When you walked in, it was like I wanted people's eyes to start jumping around and saying, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that. And we were very successful doing that. Um, my sister has an eye for display, and so her and I were kind of yin and yang. And I'd come home from market, and I'd say, okay, here's what we bought, and I've got a vision for the window that when this comes in, this could go be this display. And, and so we just, we had fun. We really had fun. And so getting back to my purpose of being involved in making a difference. The first year that we were open, um, we had had a community Christmas tree and it had kind of gone away. And so we wanted to bring it back and we needed lights. So I had a fancy fashion show. And the theme of the fashion show was New York, New York. And imagine that. And we put a runway in the store. We moved all the clothes and inventory out of the store to the big back room that I had and suited up some six to ten ladies in my store with outfits to model. Um, I had a couple guys in tuxedos serving champagne and hors d'oeuvres, and it was a big damn deal. I mean, (laughs) and we sold tickets, and the store was decorated to the nines. The front windows all had skylines of New York, silhouetted and I did all my own radio advertising with David Leeds so we went up and we did a whole cut of New York songs and and um, 
It was great. It was so much fun. And the money that we raised from selling the tickets went to the Christmas light fund. So for the next nine years, we did eight years, we did fashion shows every October right around Christmas. And we always had a fundraiser that the money would go to. And we made it an event, a ladies' night out to just giggle and laugh and have fun. And it wasn't about selling the clothes. It was about having fun. I just, I have to have you tell the story of... (laughs) When, when Deborah's did, did it close down when you left? It did. Okay. I, I closed it. I was trying to sell it, but the lady that wanted to buy it wanted to keep my name. And I said, no, you have to change the name of the store because mm-hmm. that's my name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the story you told, though, is, about, is that the men of Haver loved your oh. store <laughs> during the Christmas holiday, right? So can you tell us? Well, that we, we did, a, I, as I said, I referenced earlier, coming to Deborah's was supposed to be fun, mm-hmm. shopping experience. And um, so at Christmas time, to get the men in the store, well, during the year, we worked really hard to know what our customers liked, their sizes, when their birthdays were. Um, So we kept files. We kept a Rolodex file on all these customers. So when it started to get around Christmas and the Christmas clothes were coming in and the winter sweaters and stuff, we worked with them to say, hey, if so-and-so was going to come in and buy you something, what do you want me to show him? What do you want me to tell him? How do you want me to direct him? Well, this just this grew, and so through the chamber that I was involved in at the time, um, the retail committee, we set up a, a citywide men's night, and so on men's night, I had adult beverages and hors d'oeuvres, and the men got invitations to come, and we had music playing, and... Um, we had a big table in the store that people used to sit around and just chat. It became a gathering place. And so we'd bring out the outfits and say, well, you know, she was in the other day and she liked this, but she kind of liked that. And so we'd always put everything together as a full outfit. And um, more times than not, they bought everything that we showed them. <laughs> so I still have gentlemen in town that say I've created – a situation that it's the worst Christmas ever because I used to make them heroes and now Christmas shopping is a challenge. So after Deborah's, you became the executive director of the Chamber of Commerce, a post in in Haver, and you held that post for a total of 24 years, I think. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. So while I was in business, I got involved, served on the chamber board. And when Debra's was put to rest, um, I went back to college because I needed to get computer savvy. And I also felt I needed to hone my writing skills and my public speaking skills. So I just kind of dabbled in higher education and the position for the executive director opened up and I thought hmm 
you know, I think I want to do that because that really is the ultimate community service project, mm-hmm. <laughs> working at a chamber. So I applied and got the job and started right in. And it was an easy transition because I'd been active on the chamber board and active on a couple of the chamber committees. So um, I got I already kind of had in my head some things that we might do and expand on and whatever. So I was in that position for like two years and we were rocking and rolling. And that's when I, um, my ex-husband and I decided that we both needed a life change. So we went our separate ways and I resigned from the chamber and went back to college full time and had a goal that I was going to graduate by the time I was 50. And a member of the chamber board called me about six months into my new life and said, would you take your job back? (laughs) Um, And I didn't jump in yes right away. I had, um, was seeing a guy and thinking, you know, I need to do something different. Maybe I don't need to do the chamber. And, and, uh, so I kind of kept him at arm's length for a little while and we negotiated for me to come back. But the negotiations were that I would get to continue my education and take Mm -hmm. classes so that even though I had a full-time chamber job, I would be in and out taking classes. So I didn't get to graduate when I was 50. It was 52 when I finally graduated from Northern. I think I took every business class that was in the in the handbook. And I loved the chamber because it allowed me to work with people, be with people. Um, it was kind of what I missed when I closed Deborah's, is I missed the connectivity to the people. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I liked it. There were challenges. There were opportunities. Um, I had great partners in economic development, and we were just kind of a team and working together. So it was it was so much fun, and probably my my proudest accomplishment. Well, there's two two big ones. The first one is I started a leadership high school program, but before that through the efforts of the board and teamwork and working with so many people that we took seven half blocks of downtown Haver right on First Street and turned it into the town square, which is where our community tree lighting is, our farmer's market. We have music in the park in the summer on every Wednesday night. And so taking that ugly asphalt, icky eyesore in the middle of our charming community and turned it into a community score. Yeah. Well, I really am dying to hear more about your leadership high school program because you had said that those were some of your happiest days because you really felt like you were making a difference for kids. And I'm just dying to hear more about that. Yeah. Kirk Miller was superintendent of schools and he was on the chamber board. And we would have a twice a year meeting of chamber execs from across the state. And I was my Missoula partner and my Billings partner and 
Kalispell and all of them would come and give reports on their leadership high school programs. And I thought, hmm, I want to do that. So one morning in a meeting, I got them all around the table with coffee and said, talk to me about the nuts and bolts of a leadership high school program. And they were so gracious. They all shared their curriculums with me. I was getting packets in the mail and all kinds of stuff. And so I sat through and cherry-picked from all of them different activities. So I mapped ours out, and it was going to be six months, and it would start in October, and it would end in March or April. And it would not cost the students anything that I would work with the businesses to get lunches sponsored and different things sponsored. And that was, that was I think, the caveat of it was it wasn't going to cost the kids. It was so much fun because we would meet in October and we would do a full two-and-a-half-day retreat where they would get to know each other and they'd do skill-building activities. And I was using Marty Foxman out of Great Falls. He was a facilitator for me for all the years I was there. And to see the kids come in that first day and then leave after two-and-a-half days, they got to know each other better because they weren't always kids that ran around in their little groups. So they were they knew of each other, but they didn't know each other. And so that was fun. Um, probably the best was in December, they would do work in the community. Dang. And we would spread them around. They would build food baskets at the food bank. They would go to the Salvation Army and work with the Angel Tree and get all the packages together for the kids that would and they would work at the soup kitchen and serve lunch. They would go to the care center at the hospital and spend time with the citizens there. And then we would come back together for lunch. And then we would go shopping because they all had angels to go buy stuff. And it was so fun. And we and I told them that they each they worked in groups so that if they all pooled their $5, they'd have $20. But, and it was their money. Mm-hmm. So um, to watch them get so excited when they would see what their little angel paper said and said, well, Johnny wants this, but oh my gosh, we got to get this to go with this. And pretty soon they would have carts of stuff. And we'd have all that together at the end, and we'd have carts filled with presents clothes and toys and stuff for kids and then that would go back to Salvation Army and be given to those kids Um, and then at the end of the year we had a luncheon and they all had to get up and talk about what was their most memorable experience at Leadership High School and it was amazing that the day that they did their give their service work was it touched them in so many different ways. They didn't realize there was poverty in Haber because they could go home and open up their refrigerator at the end of the school day, and it was stuffed with whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they felt, one of the young gentlemen said, I, I didn't realize how blessed I was mm. for the life I have. And, I mean, there were tears and, I mean, I choke up because 
I just saw such a growth and a transformation and an eye-opening experience that when they give out that box at Thanksgiving and it's a box, it's a dinner, and that's all they get, um, it just kind of brought them all back full circle, kind of grounded them a little bit, and they grew. And they were all juniors. And so you'd see them come in and at the end and then go out and six months later and they just grew and matured and and it was just fun. I and I had a lot of people say, What's the chamber doing in a leadership high school program that has nothing to do with business? And I said, It has everything to do with business. This is our next future. They would do job shadowing. One month they would job shadow. They'd pick a a career path that they might want to do, and they'd go out and job shadow. I said, these are the kids that we want to come back to our community after college and invest in our community and open a business. And so their exposure to businesses was probably the next best experience that I could provide them and the tools to make them better as they moved through their life and went on to college. And hopefully they all would get involved in the communities at Bozeman and Missoula or Helena or Butte, wherever they went to college, that they would do something for the community. The next thing I want to talk to you about, and it just dovetails so nicely after your leadership high school program, is that you, Deb Vandenberg, were Vandenberg were part of the Leadership Montana Organizing Committee. It sounds like that started around 2003. I want to tell. I want you to tell us about how you got involved and what it looked like in the early days. I just have to preface that that. It was another amazing life experience, and it was very humbling and exciting. How did I get there? Well, um, I went to Senator Max Baucus had a statewide economic conference. How can we make Montana better? How can we grow Montana? it, it didn't have a lot of framework to it, but he brought all these people together. And that first meeting was at Eastern in Billings. And I was working at that time very closely with um, Bear Paw Development in Haver. And the community development person was on my chamber board. And so he said, come on, you need to come to this. So I went to the conference and I can't remember what the presentation was, but I remember it, it was at the end of it, they talked about this vision of forming a statewide leadership program that could bring all the communities of Montana together and work for the common good of the state. From all industries, from all backgrounds, from rural communities to larger communities and not a real vision of what that was going to look like but and if you're interested fill out the form when you leave the room if you're interested in serving on the organizing committee to start the chatter and development of such a program 
I, I, I made the cut. I got the phone call and said, how would you like, would you, are you still interested in serving on this organizing committee for this program called Leadership Montana? I said, I'm in. And it was about the time that I had started my leadership high school program. So they were kind of dovetailing each other. So I get the invite and the big old letter, and I end up at the top of the first interstate bank building in Billings, and Tom Scott is our our leader. And all of us know Tom Scott is a legacy that we cherish. And sitting around the table were some people I knew and some people I didn't know. Um, Jerry Evans, that's still very actively involved in, in um, leadership. Um, Rolf Gorseth was there. Um, Taylor Brown was there. Um, it was, a, it was in a, a very eclectic group of people. And again, I looked around the table and I went, what am I doing here? So the process starts, and we meet for a whole year, once a month. Most of the meetings were in Billings at, the, at Tom's bank building. And we started to form and develop and what this vision could look like and what this program, what would be the perfect program. And as we were developing it, we were getting to the kind of the end and saying, well, geez, we'll meet in Billings and we'll do this and we'll meet in Kalispell and we'll do this and we'll meet in Great Falls and we'll do this or whatever, Missoula. And I got kind of crabby. And I got up, and we had a Montana map out in front of us. And I said, you're missing a big part of Montana. All the space between all those towns. I said, you're, you're totally not looking at what rural Montana, small town Montana. And so I just said, you know, we got to reevaluate this. We need to make sure that at least of those six months that we're doing leadership, that they're getting some of the highlights of the challenges and the opportunities and the lifestyles of Mile City and Sydney and Glendive and Haver. And, and there was like, I was, I was really crabby about it. And so we started to develop the first year curriculum. And so one of, we went to Mile City because I was selected to participate in the first class. And I was so excited about that because I got to see the fruits of the labor Mm -hmm. put into motion, not just talk, but put into motion. And Bruce Wittenberg and Sharon were amazing. And, but that was probably the most memorable day was sitting there listening to the leaders of the city of Mile City talk about their town mm-hmm. and the passion that they had for their town and the and the love and the struggles and all of that kind of stuff and so I continued to persevere and we finally got a leadership program that came to Haver and I think three times we've the group has come to Haver and it it just is an opportunity people that have never been to Haver 
I mean, I had an alum of my class say, why would I go to Haver? There's nothing in Haver to go to Haver for. And that really, it goes back to that, that kind of, those are fighting words to me. <laughs> and the mayor of Missoula at the time had the same feeling. And I was like, that disappointed me because ooh, I would never talk about somebody's town that way. But I think that over the evolution of Leadership Montana, it is, it is doing what the vision was. And for to come up with a, a framework from those first few years, but now it's just... It's, it's exceeded the expectations that all of us had. Yeah. I mean, the indigenous program that's rolling out, um, the work that Chantal's doing, getting the legislature, you know, those folks together that um, we've always been, you know, leave, that, leave the D and the R's at the door and let's talk about how we can make Montana a state that we just want to rattle our pom-poms for. When you think about, so from 2004, organizing committee, you're selected, and so profound, you've still, you know, Deb dug up all these materials that she had from the first, <laughs> actually pull out that purple sheet. This is, <laughs> tell us what this is. This is from 2004. This is from 2004. This is the, the in September, Leadership Montana, inaugural class. I had to write a letter to myself, but there's, there's statements on here that I had to finish. And as I dug this out and was reading it, I went, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is still me. Um, and one of was, you know, from a civic level, as a leader in my community in state of Montana, I hope the program will assist me to help make a positive change in my community. Mm-hmm. Um, and a personal level, the involvement in Leadership Montana will assist me to grow in areas to be a better listener and a better follower. And I, I read this and went, oh my gosh. And I don't think I've deviated too much from that weird thread that developed way back then to today. Okay, lightning round. What is your definition of leadership? To be a very good listener. Um, what are you reading right now? Well, actually what I'm reading are the archives on Montana State University Northern um, on the buildings because we're making the district, um, making it the college campus a historic district. So oh. I'm doing research right now on the building of Cowan Hall. It's my winter project. We've got to get the history of all the buildings done. So, But it's fun and interesting. What is the most important thing you can teach your grandchildren? To say thank you. Do you have a TV or movie recommendation? My legacy is English, and so you already know that we watched The Crown. Yeah. And I loved it. It just, it was just something about it. It just kind of tied parts and pieces of history together that I just didn't quite know. A habit or routine 
that you have developed that has improved your life? Well, after I got through my pneumonia, um, to build my lungs back up and everything, I walk from my house to the county road every day, even at below zero temperatures. If it's too cold and it's frostbite warnings, I don't go. But it's pretty much an everyday event that I bundle up and take a walk. And I enjoy every day is amazing. The blue skies, the first chirp of the meadowlark, um, the frost the other morning on the trees was beautiful. Um, yesterday morning, 48 wild turkeys came out of the, the river behind my house. And um, I, don't wear, I don't walk with music. It's just me against the world for that half an hour, 45 minutes. And it is so, it energizes me for the day, but it also makes me appreciate life and where I'm at. I have an image in my head of you counting up to 48 turkeys. I did. Did you count from a photo or did you count in real time? I was counting. (laughs) I was literally counting. I love that so much. And there were three white ones. pulling up a picture. Yeah, looks like a whole, looks like at least four dozen. A gaggle of geese. (laughs) Gaggle of turkeys. (laughs) Okay, so that leads me to my last question. Which is, what makes Haver so special? I I don't mean this in a corny way. It really is the people. No matter what project I embark upon, no matter what help I need, laying sod in the town square when the semi rolls up with all this sod, you ask people to come and help a fundraiser for somebody. They're there. The people are amazing in so many ways that it's, I just am lucky to live there and be a part of the community. Deb Vanderberg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. It was fun. Thanks to Deb Vanderberg for taking the time to come on the show. And thanks to you for listening in. If you've enjoyed today's show and want to support Listen First Montana, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Those small steps can really help us connect these stories to more listeners. Our intro song is a rendition of the Montana State song by Scott Gudger, and our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, thanks for listening to Listen First Montana.